Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Matt Swing, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. This morning we are continuing on in the Reaching Out series. Uh, This morning we'll be talking about how our God is a missionary God, how God always has been missionary God. When I first moved to Spain, one of the first things that uh, I had to do when I moved there was learn how to speak Spanish. When we moved to Spain, I knew like 10 words, like where's the bathroom, can I have a drink please, that's about it. So every morning I dedicated myself to studying Spanish. I'd get up, I'd go to this cafe, and I would bring my Spanish books, and I'd pull out the Spanish newspaper, and I'd read through it, and I would just kind of get some chunks of it. And I'd do this day after day after day, and and gradually I started reading the newspaper, and I'd start to kind of understand what I was actually reading about more than just through the pictures. I'm like, oh, this is great. And I remember it was about uh, eight months, nine months in. I had been talking with people in Spanish. I'd been ordering things in Spanish. I'd been reading the newspaper in Spanish every day. And uh, I had this one class with my, uh, with my, my tutor, and uh, they taught me this new word, this new concept that uh, I was like, oh, wow, that's really crazy. I've never, never seen that word before, ever. And I really was like, I haven't ever seen that word before. That day I went to the cafe, pulled open the newspaper, and as I, opened the, like, as I look at the front page, I see that word all over the page. It was all up and down the page. That, that word was used almost in every sentence. I was like, that's crazy. I've been reading the newspaper for months. I never before saw this word. A lot of times in our, in our spiritual walk with Christ, it's that same thing. We may, we may grasp concepts. We grasp parts of the character of God. But the more we study, the more we get to know them, the more that he reveals our, himself to us, the more we see how he's already there, how he's already been working, even though we weren't perceptive enough to realize it. It's also how God reveals himself a lot of times through scriptures. As he uh, revealed himself over time, he gradually unveiled his heart, his desire. But if you look through scripture, you see uh, certain characteristics that, that thread their way from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. <clears throat> Tozer, uh, this week I've been reading some uh, A.W. Tozer. He was a pastor in the south side of Chicago. He was a CMA pastor. And uh, I've never read him before, but as I was reading him this week, this, uh, this, there was part of what I read that struck me, and I wanted to share that with you this morning. To speak of being near to or far from God is to use language in a sense always understood when applied to our ordinary human relationships. A man may say, I feel my son is coming near to me as he gets older, and yet that son has lived by his father's side since he was born and has never been away from home more than a day or so in his entire life. What then can the father mean? Obviously, he is speaking of experience. He means that the boy is coming to know him more intimately and with deeper understanding, that the barriers of thought and feeling between the two are disappearing, that the father and son are becoming more closely united in mind and heart. That is our desire as we, as we seek to study Scripture. It's not just to know a bunch of stuff, not to fill our minds with information, but it's to, to, to gradually know more who God is and gradually grow closer to Him. Let's continue to draw close to God. Let's continue to seek His character that we may deepen our understanding of who He is. 
And let's allow our understanding of God's character to affect and infect our character as well. A lot of times when we talk about missions uh, in sermons, the, the first thing you hear about is a, a sermon on the Great Commission. And um, that's good. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. The Great Commission is awesome. It's powerful. But sometimes we get the perception that as Jesus has finished up his ministry, he's leaving earth, and uh, he's getting ready to, to float away on a cloud. He's like, hey, by the way, world, uh, go, go, go preach this to the whole world. Or, oh, P.S., I almost forgot. Go make disciples. You know, it's just like a, oh, final thought. I just want to get you out there. This is one last thing. And sometimes we have this idea that it's at the very end, oh, he just tacks it on and runs away. That is not God's missionary heart for the world. So in order to show this, we want to jump back in time, 2,000 years before Jesus, to, to Abraham. So turn with me now to Genesis 12, chapter 2. God called Abraham out of Ur, and Abraham was faithful and followed. And this is a promise that God gave to Abraham. He said, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And pin, and pin you all in, and by you all the families on earth shall be blessed. So Abraham was the first person that God called out. And after he was called out, God made him this promise. He says, first of all, he's like, I'm going to bless you. And we always like that when God says, I'm going to bless you. We're like, yes, that's awesome. I don't know what that means exactly, but that's great. It sounds really good. And then he goes on to say what that blessing is going to be like. I'm going to give you land. Your name's going to be great. People are going to revere you. But well, there is a condition on that. Benson mentioned it earlier in the, in the kingdom prayer. The blessing was conditional. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. So often in our, in our Christian lives, we have the, the feeling or the, the thoughts that we are blessed as an end in itself. That that is the end. That is the final end. And that's very, very wrong thinking. Um... Those of you who have children, you've seen this. Uh, when, when our kids, our kids, we, they get showered with toys from grandparents and parents and birthdays and everything. You, there's toys all over their room. Everywhere you go, there's toys. But when, for, sometimes there's a certain age when a friend comes over and you see your kids like hoarding their toys. And they're like, no, these are mine. These are the good ones. And you're like, if, as a parent, that's so frustrating because you're like, I, those toys are, yeah, those are toys are yours and they're awesome and they're fun. But they're going to be way more fun if you share them. If you hoard them, that, first of all, you're not having any fun, and neither is anybody else. That's a ridiculous way to treat your toys. On the mission field, we were tremendously blessed by other people being very generous to us and, and giving us money to uh, be able to survive, live our daily lives. Uh, we didn't have to hold down a job because our job was to be missionaries. Our job was to connect with people. But imagine if as missionaries we are like, living it up, like, this is great. And we, we spent every day at the beach, not doing beach ministry, just at the beach. Like, we were basically on, like, vacation all the time. That would, if, if our supporters found out that that's how we were living our life, that would really frustrate people because that wasn't their intent. Their intent was for us to live and to not be worrying about finances, 
so that we could minister and bless others. I don't know if you've seen recent things about their trust fund babies. Um, people who basically their parents are really wealthy. They've, they've started a huge trust fund. And the interest is so much, it's more than like our whole church probably makes in a, in a given month. And so through the trust fund, this money that they'll never touch, they live off the interest their entire lives. Unfortunately, a lot of these people uh, who are term, this, uh, called trust fund babies squander their time and their energy. They have everything you could possibly want. They have all the money, everything taken care of. They have a, a future in front of them that is bright as could be and li- no, literally nothing holding them back. And yet, they choose to squander it all on themselves. How wonderful, how amazing, how powerful would that be if somebody who had that kind, those kinds of resources turned around and lived their lives in a way that they served others their whole lives. That is what God is calling us to. God has taken care of us. He has blessed us. He has given us all that we need, more than we could imagine or ask for, with the condition that we use it to bless others. The other promise that God gave Abraham was that he was going to make him into a great nation. You'll recall that Abraham was very old, uh, and, and Sarah even laughed when she heard that they were going to have have children because they were so, they were so old they were just like it's impossible. <laughs> they had a son, Isaac. They had Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had twelve sons, the youngest of whom went to Egypt, brought their whole family down, and they became a great nation. God's word was fulfilled in Abraham's life, but it doesn't end there. The blessing doesn't end there. The nation doesn't end there. Israel went on to become a superpower in the time of David and Solomon. And even through the exile, their line continued on. And eventually, if you follow Abraham's line all the way down, you will find that one of his great, 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 great grandchildren is Jesus. God said, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. God's plan for Abraham from the beginning was Jesus. God's plan for the nations from the beginning was that they would be blessed and brought to him through Abraham's line, through Abraham's seed. Turn with me to Psalm 67. Verses 1 through 3. This is a psalm of David. David says, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face shine upon us, that your ways may be be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all peoples praise you. Here you see that David's heart echoes that of, of God's heart. David realizes that God's blessing isn't just a blessing in and of itself, but it's a blessing to be, uh, to be a blessing that we're blessed to give to others. As we look at Solomon and the dedication of the temple, 1 Kings 8, Solomon spends a lot of time making pronouncements and prayers, and in the midst of his prayers for the temple, the temple that is central to Jewish 
uh, the Jewish religion and the Jewish connection with God. In, in Jewish uh, history, it's, it's, there's a sense that the temple was the part in earth where the earthly realm and the heavenly realm crossed one another. Everywhere else on earth, they were separated, but there is one place on earth where they crossed, and this cross happened in the temple. And this is what King, this is what King Solomon says at the temple dedication. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. So even Solomon, in the building of this temple, even though this temple was, was a temple part of the Jewish religion and part of Jewish heritage, even still, in the midst of this, Solomon prays that this would be a, a way that God would be able to speak to the nations, that for those who come into this temple and pray in this temple, that their, their prayers would be answered, and that would be a testimony to God, and that God's name would be made great. So Abraham has promised to be a blessing. David echoes that. Solomon prays for the foreigners. Now let's see what Jesus says. Move to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, verse 14. Jesus just found out that John the Baptist had been executed. And he was uh, near Capernaum, which is uh, on the northeastern, the northwestern side of the uh, Sea of Galilee. It was near his hometown. Uh, it was a Jewish area. And this is what happens. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit on the, on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, A blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. So here, Jesus is near his Jewish hometown, healing people. They've been there all day. It gets towards the end of the day, the disciples are like, um, people are going to start to get hungry, and that's not going to be pretty. We should probably send everyone away so they can get something to eat. We don't want anything you know, bad to happen. Jesus says, you, feel, you feed them. You take care of this. And they're like, Jesus, come on. We don't have, like, what, how do we do that? He says, what do you have? So they bring to him what they have. Five loaves of bread, two fish. He blesses it. They begin to distribute it. It's enough to feed everyone. When they're done, they begin to collect it. They bring it in, and uh, it ends up being 12 baskets left over. Remember that 12 is a very significant number in, uh, in Israel. We'll come back to that. 
So now what happens? Jesus begins, he walks on the water. Yeah, he, go, he walks across the Sea of Galilee. They go to a different place. Uh, he heals some more sick people. He uh, debates some Pharisees. <clears throat> and while they're there, uh, they're in a new place. It's, uh, it's called Decapolis. Decapolis is a region of ten Roman cities on the eastern edge of uh, the Roman Empire. I don't think you would find many Jews there most of the time because this wasn't a region that the Jews liked to frequent. It was, uh, it was where the Samaritans hung out. So Jesus is going here, and uh, he's, he's working among the Samaritans. And I think that the disciples are really having a problem with this. They're really struggling with this. So if, if you jump down to, verse, to Matthew 15, verse 32... There's an interesting story, and it's going to sound vaguely familiar, but let's read it anyways. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. Having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Wait, didn't we just read that story? It sounds like the same story, right? I think most of my Christian life, I never realized there were two feedings. So we have the first feeding of 5,000 men, not counting women and children. It's near Capernaum, near Jesus' house. It's mostly Jewish crowd. Jesus said to his disciples, let's feed the people. The disciples said, I, we don't know how. How do we do that? And he has says, what do you have? They break the bread. They, they distribute it. He does a miracle. When it's done, there's 12 baskets left over. The disciples are told to meet him on the other side of the lake. He walks across the lake. He meets him on the other side. They heal some people. He debates with the Pharisees. But now they're in a different region. They've been with these people for, for three days, healing people. They're in a very similar situation. Now Jesus says to the disciples again, Hey, let's feed the people. My first thought when I read this was, Man, those disciples are so dense. He says, Feed the people? You just saw, like, just a few days ago, he fed 5,000 people. Here you are, again, very similar situation. Jesus says, Feed the people. You think it'd be like, That's right. Let's collect our uh, bread and fish. Let's uh, bless it. Let's distribute it. You think that they would be like, let's kick it into gear. That doesn't happen. For the longest time, I, I just thought, you know, man, I don't get those disciples. I mean, they're, here they are walking with Jesus every day, and they just don't get it. But I think it goes deeper than this. They weren't in Jewish territory anymore. They had left the, the land of the blessing. They had left the region where God was working in his people. And in their eyes, hey, 
We're out here among the Gentiles. I mean, I don't know. What can we do? I guess uh, <laughs> we should send him away. Jesus says, no, you don't get it. That's not why we're here. So, a second time, Jesus collects the food, breaks the bread. He does the identical miracle that he just did a few days previous. Does exactly the same thing. This time, at the end, there's seven baskets left over. So what's the significance of the number 12 in Israel? Does it have any importance? Does it mean anything? It actually does. If you go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. His 12 sons ended up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. And that is how Israel organized itself throughout history. 12, again, has a significant, uh, takes up a significant point in history when Jesus calls out 12 disciples. Jesus was reconstituting Israel. He was restarting it. He was rebooting it. Israel had some issues. It had some problems. And Jesus said, you know, we need to restart this. Israel is, the idea of Israel is good, but it's been tainted. It's been, it's, it's not what the Father has in mind. So we're going to start fresh. We're going to restart the 12, the 12 tribes right here. And he started with 12 disciples. At the end of the feeding, there were 12 baskets left over. This symbolizes God's provision for Israel, that God hasn't forgotten them, that he's still taking care of them, that he is the one who will provide plenty for them. There will be leftovers. Then he goes to Samaria among the Gentiles. Now this time, it's not 12, it's 7. It's like, well, that's strange. Where'd 7 come from? If you look back into the Old Testament, the land surrounding Israel, there are seven Samaritan nations that are called out by name repeatedly. These are the nations that Israel was initially called to wipe out, and they failed. They didn't follow, uh, they didn't follow their, their um, prerogative in that. But these nations, God is saying, look, these nations are here. You have been trying to cast them down, to treat them poorly. And I am telling you now, they are part of the kingdom. In the new kingdom that I am reconstituting, there is now a place for the Samaritans. No longer shall they be the cast out, the beaten down. No longer shall they be considered outsiders. They are now part of this new kingdom. Just as I am blessing Israel, so I am blessing the ends of the earth even those who have been your greatest enemies. So Genesis, Abraham is called out. We see that throughout time, God is establishing his nation. His nation is supposed to, uh, is a nation that is called to him. This nation isn't called to just Hoard everything. It's a call to share, to give, to be a blessing to others. Now, in Matthew 24, Jesus gives signs of the ends of the age. Turn with me to chapter 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, 
See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but a beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In the midst of all these signs of the end times, the end will not come until the gospel was proclaimed to all nations. All, all nations can be also translated as all ethne in the original language, which means all people groups. So it's not necessarily a geopolitical thing. It's not necessarily, when you look at a map, it's not all the different countries and the colors that you see them in. But it's in those countries there are different people groups and different languages and different, different sects and different cultures. Each of those groups will have a person or people that are, are part of the kingdom of God. When this happens, then the end will come. Now is when the Great Commission comes in. Now is when we see, read the Great Commission. In the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are, four, there are four accounts of what's going on in Jesus' life. I don't know, I don't know how, if you've studied this before, but when I was little, I used to think that they were chrono, chronological. Like, Matthew does the first part of Jesus' ministry, Mark does the next part, John, that's not how it works. They're, they both go from beginning to end Jesus' ministry, but they, all, they each highlight different aspects of his ministry. There are a lot of things that verify that the books are similar as they have similar words, but then there are some things that like Luke really cares about how Jesus treats the Gentiles, and Mark really cares about how Jesus responds to the Jews. So as you read through these different books, you get different angles of the same ministry, of the same life. So now, at the end of Jesus' ministry, at the end of what God has been building up to, now we come to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, 20 says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Mark 16:15 says, He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Luke 24, 46 and 47. He told them, This is what is written, The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead, and the third day in, in repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then John 20 and 21. 20, verse 21. Again, Jesus said, Peace with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. The Great Commission was not an afterthought. It was not a P.S. on the end of a letter. The Great Commission was, was God's, the explosion of God's grace and His work in humanity. God did not come just to sing, just, just for a single man or a single nation. God came that all nations on earth might be able to come to him.
It was part of God's plan from the beginning. David, Solomon, the prophets echo this. Jesus not only, not only ministered to the Gentiles, but he reconstituted a new kingdom that went beyond the borders of Israel. Jesus tells us to go, 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 go. Go into Jerusalem, Samaria, the ends of the earth. I love uh, Revelations. I don't always understand all of it, but I love reading it. As, I, as you read John's words, sometimes it's like somebody pulls open a curtain to the, begin, to the future, and we get a glimpse through the eyes of John into what, what's going to happen at the end of time. In Revelation 7-9, it says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. From the beginning of time to the end of time, God's plan is to reach all peoples. Let us in our lives continue to pursue a deeper understanding, a deeper relationship with Christ. Let us study so that we can understand more of who God is and what he wants in our lives. Let's not be satisfied just to read in our broken English or broken Spanish or broken English the, the paper that has so much more to offer that we are missing because we're not fully understanding all the words on the page. Let's take time to go into the to the nitty-gritty. Let's try to peek behind the curtain and see what God has already revealed to us. I want to leave you with a final Tozer quote. He said, why do some persons find God in a way that others do not? Why does God manifest his presence to some and let the multitudes of others struggle along in half-light of imperfect Christian experience? Of course, the will of God is the same for all. He has no favorites within his household. All he has ever done for any of his children, he will do for all his children. The difference lies not with God, but with us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the God that you are, how you are a God who has a a love for this world that we could never understand, a love for this world that's so intense, so fervent, that throughout generations that you seek to bring people to you. Father, we pray, Lord, that uh, we will be, uh, be aware of your identity, of who you are as a God, a missionary God, a God who loves all peoples and all nations, no matter their language, no matter how they look, no matter where they've come from. Father, we pray that we will be your agents in this world, agents that that are willing to uh, lay down our lives and share your word, share your gospel, your good news with all peoples and all language. Father, we pray that you continue to reveal yourself to us, not only as a church, but as people who love you and want to know you more. Father, we pray that as we grow closer with you, that we will more closely reflect you in the ways that we act and live our lives. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.